Welcome to another episode of ASX Market Goss. For no more than 30 minutes, we're going to dig a little deeper with ASX listed small cap companies, their focus, the future, the highs, the lows, and what next. And a part of the conversation is to get to know our guests at a personal level, their experiences, their mentors, their slips and slides, even down to their coffee of choice, their sporting team, and life away from the share price and investment decision making. And today's guest in the ASX market goss is Keith Coglin, European Metals Holdings Limited, ASX code EMH. Write it down now. We're going to get to know the Keith Coglin story here on this episode. Keith, thanks for coming in. No problem at all, Tim. Good to be here. You've worn a tie today and a nice crisp white shirt. Doesn't happen often. Dressed <laughs> up for you. Um, the journey. Mm. You've been around a while now. Mm-hmm. You're a bit of a uh, you're you know a bit of a pioneer in this space. Um, as much as you can in the thirty years and thirty five years of in this space, give us the the quick fire snapshot journey of Keith Coughlin. Well, most of my working life has been as a stockbroker, and I was lucky enough to get a start on the Perth trading floor back in the eighties. Uh, which was awesome. You know, it was a, an amazing place. I was on the floor, you know, on crash day in, in October 87. And, it, you know, it's one of those memories that, you know, we all have memories that you can go to at any time and they'll be with you for your whole life. And that is certainly one of mine. Um, but all those years in broking, you know, teaches you a lot that you, you kind of, it's not formal teaching, but it's just things that you assimilate over time. And when I began doing, you know, performing this role, um, you know, I had no idea whether I could, you know, bring this together or not. Um, but through all the, through all of that knowledge that I'd learnt, informal knowledge and what have you, and then surrounding yourself with very good people and, and very good technical people, um, you know, we've managed to bring the, the project and the company to where it is. I, I want to take you back to the market, uh, being on the stockbroking floor. I, I love that stuff. Yeah. I love that. It's just... People yelling and writing and scribing and, and stuff that's just going crazy. Just tell us about the drain, the physical drain on someone working that time way back then when we didn't have laptops. It really was yelling, screaming, writing, knowing, selling, buying. That's it. It, it was that. And, you know, so you'd, you'd, you'd make a trade on the floor, which wasn't necessarily straightforward in itself. You had to yell and fight for that <laughs> at times. And then you'd have a, you'd go back to the office in between trading sessions, and you'd have a bunch of tickets, you know, room slips, that you had to then convert to physical orders and make sure they matched with the other side. And you know, if your handwriting wasn't great, as sometimes <laughs> mine. Who did I buy? What did I buy? Was, yeah, so you know, there'd be a few calls to your mate saying, "Hey, did I buy these off you, or did you buy them off me?" I or? love that. But it, it, interesting, the. When I went for the job interview for that role, it was via a, f- a friend who was already in the industry. And his boss asked him, you know, about me and said, well, you know, is he aggressive? You know, can I get him? And he said, well, not always, but I've seen him on a cricket field and he's pretty aggressive on the cricket field. <laughs> I think that might have helped. We're going to get to the cricket in a brief <laughs> moment. Uh, just, uh, you talked about 87 and the big share crash, of course. Uh, did you know going that to work that day was that's how life was going to unfold? No, so so I was the most junior guy in the office. I was the trading floor operator. So I was in first in the dark and my, my first job was to go in, turn the coffee machine on, but um, tap up the screen, you know, had a very primitive Reuters screen at the time, nothing like what there is around now. See what had happened overnight to get your guidance from Wall Street. And then I'd, I'd start putting together my book for the day or my orders, my buyers and my sells. And I had my, I had you know my book from the previous day, and I used to write it on on a Manila folder, opened out. So a full Manila folder, 
the buyers on one side, the sellers on the other, you know, in, in small writing in pencil. So, you know, there's a lot of orders there. I remember coming in this morning, you know, half asleep, tapping up the screen, and it, it came up and it said the Dow was off 512 points. And I thought, well, that's clearly an error, you know, so I tapped it up again. And then I tapped it up again and I thought, okay, well, this is going to be an interesting day. And I rang, I rang my boss and woke him up <clears throat> and I just said to him, the Dow's off. On your landline? On the landline, yeah. <laughs> On his landline, woke him up and, I, and uh, you know, you could hear the surprise in his voice that I was ringing him so early. And he said, what's going on? I said, Dow's off 500. And he just hung up. He didn't say a word. He just hung up. And we all went down to the trading floor just before the opening. And usually you'd, you'd walk on the trading floor and there'd be plenty of banter. You know, a lot of the guys knew each other. Everyone was around about the same age, early 20s. Um, you know, so there was always pre- plenty of banter on the trading floor. On this particular day, it was silent. So for the 15 minutes leading into the opening bell, no one, no one was talking. No one knew what to do. And then the bell rang, and again, there was just silence, whereas usually <clears throat> the bell would ring and people would start yelling because no one really had any guidance. What, what do we do here? And um, the, the chalkies, you know, the guys who write up, wrote up the uh, prices, had wiped, basically wiped all the markets. So you were starting from scratch. There were no bids or offers left from the previous day. And that first couple of minutes was just really tentative. And I remember, you know, BHP, I don't mean the exact numbers, but for example, BHP had finished at $12, you know, the night before. There was no market there and some guy calls out, you know, BHP $10 offered. So you're immediately marking it down 20%. And, you know, you thought, oh, that's a bit harsh. And then the next second someone goes $8 offered. And we thought, okay, this is going to be a really interesting day. And it was. (laughs) Do you remember when it closed and you... You went maybe back to the office and sat with your other work colleagues. Can you imagine, Can you? what was the powwow like? Oh, it, it was, again, it was this sort of stunned silence. Even in the office with the senior guys, you know, the advisors, the, the, the partners of the broking firm who'd all been around for some, you know, considerable time, there was just this kind of stunned silence. You know, it was like, how did this happen? And you've got to remember, this is 87. There was, <clears throat> there was way more credit in the market than there is today, you know. So today it operates on T plus three, you know, then it was T plus 30, which really meant T plus whenever, you know, there was, you, you weren't called to account. And so you know, it, it just kind of evaporated and, and, you know, people I think were doing the mental maths, you know, what this, what this all meant. And the partners obviously sitting there thinking, you know, we're going to survive this. So how long did you last there before you sort of steered off into this direction to you when you picked? Um, well, we, I managed to hang around in, in the firm there for 18 months, you know, while they thought, well, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, and it didn't. Um, and so I got retrenched, you know, as I say, being one of the most junior blokes. Uh, when I did a, a few other things for a couple of years and then and then in 92, went back into broking um, with what was then um, Patterson's, Patterson Securities or Patterson Old Manette. Yep. <coughs> Left there and went, and went and bought a broking firm in 97 with a couple of mates and with little Montague stockbrokers, which was a hell of a lot of fun. And then we actually sold that company to Patterson's in 2009. So I went back to Patterson's. Do you miss that? Yeah, absolutely. After I, after I left the firm fully, and it took a while, it was a protracted sort of, uh, you know, leaving, 
Um, you know, I'd be sitting at my at my desk working, and I'd want to. I just want to tap up prices. You know, look at the training screen because that's all I'd known for so many years. And you felt you felt really out of the loop, not being able to see your live screen, and you know, and and that took quite a few years for that to go away. And I'd ring brokers, mates, you know, to to check on the market, and I'd ask for prices, and they'd be telling me the prices, but I couldn't really just picture it in my head because I was used to seeing it on a screen and uh, yeah it felt very unusual for a long time. A trading floor is a, a very unique place and it's an amazing, amazing place to work and particularly as a young bloke cutting your teeth and so you do miss that, you miss that banter, you miss the, the, the ups and downs and what have you. Um, like the bookmakers ring at Ascot or, or Gloucester Park. There are definitely similarities. Yeah. Massive banter. Those days, are, sadly, with corporate bookmaking, and everything's online and a lot of people don't go to the racetrack like they used to uh, and stuff. But I <laughs> can sort of see, see similarities. Yeah. I love that thrill. Yeah, and it's, you know, I consider it a privilege to have been there on crash day. I consider it a privilege to have been on the Perth trading floor the last day of the Perth trading floor. Yeah, and what it, was that like? And share that with our listeners. So by that stage... ASX had started to phase in the, the electronic trading. So you'd have a, a trading screen on your desk on the trading floor. What year are we talking, Keith? Uh, Roughly? It would have had to have been uh, in the late late 80s, early 90s. So like we went from shorthand to tape recorders yeah. as journos. Yeah. yeah. And so what what they did was they they started slowly phasing stocks off the screen, off the boards and onto the screens and progressively moved it that way. Yeah, well, and obviously a lot of teething problems with technology the way it was in those days. But, you know, to, you, you know, nostalgia is a seductive liar and, you know, you miss those days. But it, the, the system is clearly far more efficient these days than it was. How often do you scan the share price now, uh, ASX code EMH? Actually, not a lot, not a lot. But I, you know... The, through the through my mates in broking and and good shareholders and what have you, you know, I get updates from from time to time, but I I rarely uh, I rarely chat. We're in development stage, and any any mining project in development stage gets a little boring for the average punter. And you know, like when you're in that exploration stage and it's exciting and what have you, and your share price bounces around a lot. But you know, in that development stage where you don't have as much news flow. You know, your, your price just doesn't really jump around too much. And, you know, the way market's been in the last few months, every time I look at it, it's lower, so I stop looking at it. <laughs> Tell us about the European Metal Holdings <coughs> Limited journey. Well, just following on from that point. So as I say, we are in development stage. And, you know, as a couple of uh, good brokers around town have said to me, you know, don't worry so much about the share price today, just deliver. You know, you've got a development underway, deliver that development share price will look after itself. So it's been an interesting journey. You know, we, so I went on to the board of the, the company that became European Metals in September 80, sorry, September, God, 13, 2013. And with, a, with the brief to try and find a project. You know, it had previously had an iron ore project in West Africa when that was a very strong market and, you know, it was going, going very well. And then, you know, the iron ore price had fallen and a lot of these projects went by the wayside. <clears throat> and the, the guy said to me, you know, come on. I was making the transition out of broking. You know, I'd, we'd sold to Patterson's, worked through the golden handcuffs period and I was, you know, wanted to move on to a couple of public company roles. So I embraced this and went off and, and ended up finding this project. 
from a, a, a friend of mine who was a mining engineer who'd been showing the project, you know, in the Czech Republic in lithium and tin, which weren't exactly two household words in late 2013. But we did the DD. The, the company at the time had some significant Chinese shareholders who were particularly bullish on tin. That also, you know, started to develop the lithium sector. So these guys were keen that we did make this acquisition. We ended up completing that in early 2014, Valentine's Day 2014. <laughs> and, you know, and I remember going to the the major shareholders then and said, okay, you know, that's done. What should we do now? And they said, well, why don't you run it? And I said, well, because I don't know how to. And they said, that's fine. We'll, you know, we'll help and we'll find some guys that can help and whatever and away it's gone. So it's been nine plus years now, um, which is amazing really when you think, how long that journey is and uh, you know it's a bit like the old frog in the pot of hot water you know <laughs> it, it heats up around you but you know we've been we've had some we've had some luck in terms of the macro has definitely gone in our favor um, in terms of the lithium market uh, and that's been that's been very good the project itself is fascinating it's a historic underground tin mine and they started mining tin in this, this is pro- in the Czech Republic yeah so the deposit straddles the Czech German border kind of closer to Dresden than Prague. But it's the, it's the historic Eastern Europe. It was part of the East, you know, post-war. And so most of the development work on this project was done by the Soviets, um, you know, after, well, after the, um, the curtain went up. And then they stopped mining there when the wall came down in 89 because it was sub-economic for tin. So they weren't, they weren't mining it for the lithium. They were mining it specifically for tin, as a strategic metal. So even though they were effectively losing money, you know, they don't operate in that way, but they're effectively losing money. They kept mining because they, they saw the tin as being a strategic metal. But the, the first recorded mining here is 1379, is when they started mining tin there. And that's pretty fascinating. I think a lot of people in, in Australia don't think of Europe as having a, a, a mining history. Um, but, you know, that, so it operated for 600 years. Mm. And you can imagine for the first at least 500 years of that, how primitive that was, you know, chipping away at, at veins going into the side of the hill with, you know, primitive tools. It's pretty hard yards. So you can, you can go underground now in a tourist mine on the German side at a little town called Altenburg, and you walk oh, probably 300 metres through the historic tunnels and you come to a gate, which is actually the underground border. And there's a German flag on one side of the gate and a Czech flag on the other side of the gate. And you, you step through that gate, you're into our deposit. I've taken a few people there, you know, for um, site visits and it's, you know, everyone thinks that's, that's pretty cool. But you also get an appreciation of how much hard work the, the pioneers of that mine had to go through. Um, and, they were, you know, they were a lot smaller in those days. So um, if I take any guys of your size down there. <laughs> no, no chance. They're always bumping their heads. I don't do caves. Curse. I don't do any cave walking down <laughs> south. No, I feel claustrophobic. Yeah, I do a bit too, but I, I console myself by saying, well, this tunnel's been here for, you know, <laughs> probably 400 years. It hasn't caved in Pretty yet. Pretty safe. Pretty safe. Uh, we're speaking with Keith Coglin, European Metals Holdings Limited, ASX code EMH. So where are you at? When When is the piece de resistance? <laughs> so we're in our definitive feasibility study stage. That'll complete September, October of this year. Um, that's going very well. 
we did we did have some delays with that over the last year or so. Partially that was COVID related, partially just European related. I'll, I'll get to that part in a moment. Um, but we have we have completed two separate preliminary feasibility studies on the project over the last few years, and a formal update to the most recent one. And the numbers are all very robust, and you know we're we're very much looking forward to the numbers that this DFS delivers, because you know we think they'll be very very strong from an economic point of view. Um, so that'll be September October. We'll move as quickly as possible to final investment decision. The timeline between the completion of the DFS and FID is just all about permitting. And the permitting process in Europe is it's not as streamlined as in Australia, for example, or other jurisdictions with very active recent mining industries. So that's been a little bit of a frustration. Um, what we've seen in the battery metal space, in the critical raw material space globally in the last six or so months has been an awareness, a developing awareness with governments and regimes on their need to develop these resources. So the world knows we're going green. The world's committed, the Western world certainly is committed to going green. The Europeans are completely committed. They've committed a trillion euros to green energy transition. They're fully committed to an electric vehicle future and a battery industry. And only after they made those commitments did they realise that there's probably a shortage of critical raw materials, particularly within their own regions. So Europe effectively outsourced a lot of its mining a decade or so ago because of this, you know, not wanting it in my backyard, you know, uh, environmental concerns and what have you. And there's been a glowing global realisation that that, you know, that's just kicking the can down the road to someone, make it someone else's problem. And the world's going back in the other direction at a very rapid pace when you look at ESG considerations and social factors and all of these things. So it'd be fair to say that of the, of the major jurisdictions in the world, Europe is the last to come to this table. So October, November last year, Biden announced the IRA, threw a lot of money at the industry, specifically at lithium companies, specifically at developing the critical raw materials to feed the electric vehicle transition. That particular step had a profound impact on the European Union and made them speed up their plans to do the same thing. But just by nature of how the European Union and its member states operate, it's a slower process. So Biden can say, we're going to do this. And then that's federal law. So it happens. The European Union says, we suggest that this is the way we're going to go. So we're going to put in place these policies in Brussels, but the member states are not legally bound to adopt them. So, you know, you've got a, lot, a long process and it's slow. Keith Coglin is in the chair today. Keith, away from all of that uh, heavy hitting stuff for now, and you can go, we'll go we're going to get the short, the mid and the long term <coughs> in a brief moment. What's your coffee of choice, Keith, when you're sitting down needing to a bit of pep up? Well, I've, I've actually become a fairly recent convert to oat milk, Goss. Have you really? Mm. Mm. Hello. And it happened a little bit by accident. You know, I was reading all this, all these things about, you know, drink less dairy and, you know, consume less of this sure. really fat stuff. Sure. And uh, I ended up at a coffee, at a meeting at a coffee shop uh, with a bunch of people about a year ago. And I, I went up to order myself a flat white. And they said, oh, we're completely plant-based restaurant. We don't have cow's milk. And I thought, well, that's a bit weird. But, okay. 
um, I'll have an oat milk flat white. And they delivered it and it was fantastic. Mate, I went to a cafe and it converted over a weekend or went back a second <laughs> week later and they didn't serve bacon for bacon and eggs. <laughs> I didn't go back. Yeah, I wouldn't go back to I that know. one. Uh, when you, what's the first thing you do in your role in your life? When you wake up and you have a shave and you get the day started and you have your oat coffee or whatever you want to do, um, what's the first thing you do work-related? Well, the... Having a project on the other side of the world in another time zone, you know, presents ch- some challenges, obviously. So there's a, there's a bunch of emails that have come through from the time that I've turned my computer off the night before until that point. So that's, that's my first port of call. Check those. Generally, then, I have some interaction with Aussie uh, shareholders or Aussie brokers or PR, IR, kind of the side of things, and, and that'll... That side of things will occupy and dealing with those emails will occupy most of my day through until when Europe wakes up, you know, depending on the time of the year. That can be, you know, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock or whatever. And then my day kind of begins. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of Zooms and calls and things between 2 o'clock and 8 o'clock at Much night. travel? Yeah, well, obviously there was a lot of travel early and then we had COVID, but fortunately... You know, we'd, we'd done a deal right on the verge of COVID, which, which made a massive positive difference to us. But, you know, the, and Zoom's great and Zoom's come a long way and people have become, and I don't just mean Zoom, all, the, all of those platforms, mm. and people have become way better at using it. But there's still no substitution for being there face to face. And that's particularly true, strangely enough, with Czechs and probably <clears throat> a lot of Europeans slash Eastern Europeans. So... When the when the borders opened up again a year ago, you know, I got over there, and in that in that last year, we've there's been a lot of things that were sitting between us and our partners that hadn't been thoroughly discussed or gone through, and having been back and forth to check probably five or maybe six times in the last year, um, you know, a lot of those things have been ironed out, and you know, not that there was any disputes, but just misunderstandings. Yeah. You know, you've got much a, easier to do it face to face. Well, you've got a language barrier to begin with. You've sure. got a cultural barrier as well, and then if you're trying to do these things over a screen, you know, with a with a window, a timeline, it, it's just not as efficient. Keith, I could sit here all day and talk about you know this space with European medals and the like. But I want to talk to you, and we've only got so long, remember? Yep. It's only meant to be a bunch of podcasts. <laughs> Cricket, big part of your life. Mm. Fast bowler? Well, I used to think I was, but, you know, in reality, I was probably medium fast at best, you know. Who did you play? Because <laughs> you're not a huge man. No. No, so, and that, that probably didn't help, but I didn't realise at the time. I always thought I was bigger than it turns out I am. I always because growing up, and, you know, I, I think we're around a similar age, but... I remember when you said, oh, Keith Coughlin, everyone said, oh, Keith Coughlin, he's a speedster, he's crazy. <laughs> what, were, were you ever clocked? No, we, no, we didn't have uh-huh. that Didn't have that technology. But I also, you know... I, I, if there was ro- technology, come on. If there was technology, what were you, what were you sending them down at? Oh, I've no idea. Come on, Keith. Mate, I reckon I'd be pushing hard to get it to 130. <laughs> oh, garbage. <laughs> what, what, yeah, sticks Brayshaw. Sticks, yeah. But, but I also... You know, then my role developed as an into the wind bowler. You know, so I'd open the bowling into the wind. And you're Bob Messi. Yeah, well, not as good, obviously, <laughs> but um, but and and so I'd bowl a lot of overs, and then I think I probably just subconsciously turned the pace down a little because I knew I was going to 
by a lot of voters, and and that became a role. It became kind of the into the wind workhorse. So tell us, so so people who are listening to the podcast wouldn't wasn't aware of you, probably aren't aware, or your close contacts, wouldn't you? Close shareholders, wouldn't you? Investors, but are people listening right now? Tell us about the cricket journey. Who yeah. you played for? And what, what, where it brought you, and what it brought you to? Because I mean, you were talking a very busy man, but again, putting on the putting on the the creams was a big part of your life. Absolutely, and I loved it, and I lived for it. Um, and I think the game's changed a lot, which is another story. But from the point of view, you know, I started playing at the local club down there at Claremont Cottesloe. You know, probably when I was about ten. Loved it. Had two older brothers, so I was always, you know, kind of under the pump at home to keep up with them, and I think that helps, to be honest. Um, and then, uh, and then I started playing serious cricket. So you know, A grade cricket at, at university when I was studying. Uh, and then one of the guys we had a we, we had an old English pro at uni guy called Tom Hansel, lovely man, who said to me, you know, when I was about nineteen twenty, you should go go over to England, go to England and go and have <clears throat> a season over there. See how you go. You know, it'll suit your bowling, and you know, you'll probably have a good time as well. Um, and so when I finished uni, I, I went over and I played up in uh, North Yorkshire with a very good mate of mine, Craig Ibbotson, who, you know, you could only have one overseas pro in the team, but Ibo had actually been born in Yorkshire, so he was considered a local. <laughs> Not very local, really. But so <laughs> He's we the got... most Australian bloke you'll ever want to meet. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we, we got to play together in the same team up in, in Yorkshire in a place called Bradford, uh, or as they call it, Bradford. But... <laughs> And this was a very historic ground. This was where Laker had taken his 19 test wickets. Amazing, beautiful cricket field in the middle of a, a very poor area that was very run down. And, you know, sadly, it was, um, it was kind of tough surrounds. Um, fortunately, Ebo had relatives there and we got to live in a very nice part of the world called Harrogate and just played a lot of cricket and loved it, really enjoyed it. Went back again the second season. And then I've a very clear recollection of sitting on the plane coming home after that second season and, and having a light bulb moment, just realising that I probably wasn't going to play for Australia and I really better go and do something else. But you did play a lot of cricket. Played a lot of cricket, yeah. Played a lot of cricket. Um, and as I say, I loved it. I, you know, we, I've made lifelong friends through the game. You catch up. You know, we won an A-grade premiership, which is awesome. And when we catch up with those guys again, you just have a bond that, is hard to explain, impossible to replace. Um, but I also met a lot of people in, in England playing, uh, developed some great relationships there as well, and you keep that banter going your whole life as well. Ashes series are always really interesting for the banter. We were at a function recently, you and I together. It was at your club and I was uh, there in a small role and uh, Rodney Hogg was the guest and mm. he talked about Terry Alderman and uh, <clears throat> tackling of the fan at the Wacker and stuff like that. May I share and take this moment on the ASX Market Goss? I have a connection to that incident because I was playing fourth grade at Subiaco Floret and Alan Bolton, who was also in the crowd, Bolts was in the yeah. crowd. And Clem, you said Subi Floret boy. Correct. Yeah. And I was left out of the fourth grade after making my top score, <laughs> 36 knot, right, in fourth, for Terry Alderman to come back and play as a batsman in the fourth grade competition. So with that... I left and never played again at Super. Oh, no. I was very unhappy. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. So Terry Alderman owes me. And cricket's a bit like that, isn't it? It can be a very harsh game. <laughs> um, what's the 
well, you talked about later in the year, some, hopefully you get some real results in regards to European medals. What is the short, mid and long term and where's the pitch for those who are listening to the podcast now? So the lithium space is a fascinating space and it's it's a metal that, you know, the demand the demand for which is growing dramatically. We all know that. But it's a it's an opaque market. There's not a lot of intel, there's not a lot of there's a lot of misinformation, some of which is based on ignorance, but also a lot of which is based on deliberate misinformation, you know, because of the nature of the market. It's not a metal that's traded on a on a globally recognized exchange. There's no LME, so no you can't tap up and to tell you exactly what the definitive price is. And even when we see announcements of offtake agreements and what have you, they're always a bit thin on detail. So it's easy, it's easy for big companies to push this space around. So I think, you know, that can be confusing for investors. So I just say, look, look at the hard numbers. And the hard numbers are, you know, we, we're early in April, the, the March EV numbers have just been released. And BYD, largest EV maker in the world, their production first quarter this year, year on year is up 83%. Tesla, up 61%. You know, there's going to be 14 million, roughly, electric vehicles made in the world this year. That's about three and a half million more than last year. That's a hell of a lot of lithium. So in, in just basic, simple terms, the demand for lithium isn't going away in any hurry. And when you have greater demand than supply, it, it, there is only one long-term impact on the price of that. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about lithium or bananas. You know, the price, it, it has to go up, but even if it doesn't go, it's not it's not coming back to anywhere near where we had it for so many years. So that's, that's the macro. The micro for us is that I think we are the forgotten lithium stock on the world markets, and I think that's because of what's going on in Europe and the fact that Europe is slowest to the, to the table. Um, and I, I just think our our company is going to go slowly, 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 and then it'll go bang. Time frame? Well, it'll it'll be around the DFS time, but then you know we really want a definitive answer to the permitting out of the EU. Those things lead to the, the things that the punters are looking for will be signing an offtake agreement with you know a household name, and there's plenty of those in Europe who want to buy lithium and then the finance to make all of that happen. And it all goes together. We could talk for ages. You're, you're a great story personally and both professionally. You are in a, a wonderful position right now and uh, very positive news coming out of European Metals Holdings. EMH is the ASX code. Keith Coglin, thanks for joining us on ASX Market Goss and thank you for dressing up today. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Tim. It's been a pleasure and good to see you. The content of this podcast is intended to be general in nature and is not personal financial product advice. It does not address the circumstances of any individual or entity. You should not construe any of this information or other part of the material as legal, tax, investment, financial or other professional advice. ASX Market Goss and its employees are not financial advisors. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, taxation or other advice to check how any information relates to your unique circumstances. Nothing contained in this podcast constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement or offer by ASX Market Goss or any third party to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in this or any other jurisdiction in which such solicitation or offer would be unlawful under securities laws of such jurisdiction.